62nd Annual Tony Awards returns right here on CBS. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. We're coming to you with all of the rest of 2008. <laughs> a very important year in our country, in Broadway. And now we're going we're gonna to take a look back at the revivals. I think that in the last episode, we had noted how few of the like best musical nominees Ben Brantley had reviewed for the Times. But it is interesting because it's like I think I think he was like rightly assigned to do the revivals. The revivals, yeah. And I was just looking at Patty's book, and she talks about how Ben Brantley is an important figure um, in the Gypsy revivals trajectory to Broadway Ooh. as an evil figure. Uh oh. Well, <laughs> yeah, because he's the one that wrote the review of the. Encores. Yes, and it was not a good it review. It was not a good review. <laughs> yeah, and they almost didn't um, bring it to Broadway because of that. And they were like, are you going to listen to Ben Brantley? Oh, this is me <laughs> doing my patty. You going to listen to Ben Brantley or are you going to listen to what you think? <laughs> to, to the producers. And they were like, you're right. We're going to do it anyway. Well, thank God. Yeah. A big theme of this season was there was kind of this like 50s, overarching 50s theme to this whole season, both in terms of there were a lot of revivals from the 50s, you know, South Pacific and Gypsy both kind of bookend the 50s, like from 1949 and 1959. But also both Grease and Crybaby are also like 50s pastiche mm -hmm. musicals. There were a bunch of 50s plays that were revived. Everybody was just looking back to the 50s this year. I, I don't know how much I agree with this, but even when talking about something like Passing Strange or In the Heights, the critics were like, you can imagine them as like children of the 50s. Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah. Sort of. It's a stretch. <laughs> ben Brantley wrote a um, a review, not a review, he wrote an essay kind of comparing South Pacific and Gypsy, comparing and contrasting because they were the big, like, lavish, you know, old school revivals of the season. The near simultaneous return to Broadway of these two landmark shows is essentially a matter of commerce and coincidence. But the opportunity to see them side by side underscores the distance the American musical traveled in the 10 years between them. The 1960s would begin with another Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, The Syrupy Sound of Music, triumphing over Gypsy at the Tony Awards, with an assist from Fiorello, which shared the Tony Award for Best Musical. Yet it is Gypsy, with its haunted heroine and undertow of anger, that would set the tone for the advances in the form that would follow, as the creators of the best musicals of the final decades of the 20th century stripped the gloss off the form and used it to explore darker territory. They both reference blueberry pie, which is not really a thing, but scans better than apple pie. South Pacific can be viewed as the apotheosis of the Broadway musicals and Rodgers and Hammerstein's idealizing impulse. Musicals in the years of Broadway's golden age were mostly in the business of affirmation, celebration, and escapism. Rodgers and Hammerstein's greatest shows all carry a dark undercurrent, acknowledging the possibility of loss, violence, and sin. But good always beats evil. Gypsy can be seen as the harbinger of darker things to come, a turning point in the history of the American musical that would lead to its growth in tonal complexity and stylistic eclecticism. It also prefigures a wary cynicism about the American dream that would gather force as the social unrest of the 60s took hold. Gypsy implicitly asks where the ferocious drive that fueled the prosperous 1950s may lead. The thirst for fame that burns inside Mama Rose is partly the quasi-existential yearning that haunts any soul hungry for more than the world can give, but it is also born of the all-American glorification of success. If the big brass ring is out there for the grabbing, why shouldn't I get a crack at it? The answer in Gypsy is that the struggle itself could destroy you, or at least alienate everyone you love. If South Pacific depicts the creation of a nuclear family, that homey symbol of American normalcy, 
Gypsy describes the slow annihilation of another at the hands of a mother whose real affection for her children is clouded by a need to see them succeed at any cost. I thought that was a good compare and contrast of two shows that don't necessarily seem like they have a lot in common on the surface. And I think that like it really drags home this sentiment that these are like two shows about like the real world and them being synthesized into musicals doesn't necessarily remove any of the I think it just elevates like the meaning of like what it means to like see these two things dramatized yeah yeah and uh and ben brantley also calls the revival race the sexiest race this year and also the other sort of um interesting difference between them is that this was south pacific's first broadway revival whereas gypsy has been revived constantly and i was actually looking at it and this this 2010s, unless mm-hmm. something opens fall 2019, the 2010s are going to be the first decade that did not have a production of Gypsy running in it since the 1950s. That is insane. Yeah, because like a lot of them kind of crossed over. To, oh, you know, like, that you know, carried over. Sense, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that this Gypsy revival came so close to the previous one that it was, it did feel like a little like, is this what America needs now? Yeah. But I think that obviously this is something that us theater folk have a lot of opinions on but I think that maybe it wasn't Ben Brantley but someone said like I like don't want to say that anything's the definitive anything but this may be the definitive gypsy no Hugh said it um about all three about gypsy south pacific and sunday in the park with george where Uh he was saying that these may have bet he just uh was feeling them real hard this Mm. year (laughs) So should we, do you want to start with South Pacific? Yeah. South Pacific opened April 3rd, 2008, closed August 22nd, 2010 with 996 performances, which was surprising to me. Like I knew it was a hit, but I didn't realize it ran two and a half years, like almost a thousand performances. That's really, that's wild. Book was by Oscar Hammerstein and Josh Logan, music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, directed by Bartlett Shear, musical staging by Christopher Gatelli, um, and was based on Tales of the South Pacific by James Mishner. Do we, we've kind of been inconsistent about whether we've been reading the synopses for the revivals. I don't think we should. Yeah, I don't think that we need to. <laughs> I mean, South Pacific is a very complicated show, and we're not going to talk about it or Gypsy on the level that we will once we do, you know, 1949 and 1959. So Ted Chapin, who I guess he runs the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, he had been approached many times over the years to revive South Pacific. Um, and he was like, no, 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 because people were just like, let's do this star vehicle. Like, I'm sure they were like, let's bring Reba in. Well, they do did it. do that Reba one. They did it on um, on TV, but they didn't do it. It was, do like it. A, it yeah. was just a TV thing. <laughs> I think it was just like a, a staged concert or something. It yeah, wasn't... that version of Honey Bun brings <laughs> down the fucking... Reba brings down the roof. But he was like, I only wanted to do a revival where I felt like the message and like the depth of the show was being respected and it wasn't just going to be like this kind of fun vehicle for like whoever plays Nelly. And when he saw Bartlett Shear's production of Light in the Piazza at Lincoln Center, he was like, this is the person that I can trust with this show. Mm-hmm. So And so South Pacific was the big winner it for won, the whole for show. For the whole show, it won the most Tonys. Frank Rich did like a similar kind of essay that he wrote for the Carousel Revival. Then and now, the show concludes with the most classic of American tableaus. Emile, Nellie, and the two kids sitting down to a family meal. It's hard for us to imagine how this coda must have struck audiences in 1949, when interracial marriage was still illegal in many states, as it would be in 16 until 1967. But nearly 60 years later, this multiracial family portrait has another context. The audiences watching South Pacific in this intense election year are being asked daily to take stock of just how far along we are on Nellie's path 
and how much farther we still have to go. And so as we watch that family gather at the end of South Pacific, both their future and their country's destiny yet to be written, we weep for the same reason we often do when we experience a catharsis at the theater. We grieve deeply for our losses and our failings, even as we feel an undertow of cockeyed optimism about the possibilities of healing and redemption that may yet lie ahead. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that, like, I think that, like, the images that you associate with South Pacific aren't necessarily... I think that, like, what it actually is bringing to the table is so much more profound than you would give it credit. And I feel like the kind of movie adaptations of all these shows... I don't know if it really does them justice. No, I don't think it does. I think they are trying to do these sort of crowd-pleasing, like fluffy, you know, you know the songs, you love uh, Mitzi Gaynor. <laughs> like, the South Pacific movie also is wild because they have those crazy colored filters over all the songs. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know who <laughs> approved that. It's so weird. But thankfully, we have the Live from Lincoln Center recording of this. And it's funny because I guess Kelly O'Hara learned her lesson from The Light in the Piazza where she was not in that recording. But she was like, I'm coming back. I mean, I got to be in this one. She really gave Patty, like, I think a lot of people thought that Patty had it in the bag, but she was really giving her a run for her money for first, for first lady, for best, for best actress. There was a profile of her where they talk about how, like, even though she's so, you know, beautiful and talented, it kind of took her a while to break out. Like, even though she had been working mm-hmm. um, and they were talking about how, like, she kind of has this very old-fashioned air, which doesn't really fit with, like, the way that female roles in musicals in, like, the, you know, mid-2000s were being written. Yeah. They compare her to Kristen Chenoweth. I mean, and that was something that I was kind of thinking about going into this is how, like, Kelly O'Hara really has only... Done. She's kind of like the Kira Knightley of Broadway, mm-hmm. where she like will only do period pieces. That's kind of her vibe. Yeah. <laughs> she seems like she was airlifted in from like a different era. She really does. And it's like also, I think that personality wise, like she just feels so different. Like, I don't think that there's like been the same cultivation of like a persona as like Cheno has. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it feels like both of them are just being honest to who they are. Yeah, totally. And like the shows she was in up until then, like didn't really know what to do with her. And then she kind of started lighting the piazza and then she did... The Pajama Game the next year, and then Mm -hmm. this was really, like, her big Star is Born moment. She finally got her Tony, so... I know, for... (laughs) I feel like a lot of people felt like her Tony for the King and I was, like, a corrective for her losing this Tony, which I kind of agree with. I Mm -hmm. thought she was great in The King and I, but this role, like, really fits her like a glove. Yeah, no, it's so perfect. And it's, like, yeah, I think that she's my definitive Nellie. (laughs) I think so, too. And, like, it's funny because Nellie is a role that is written to be that it's easy to be played by a Mm non-singer and like even mary martin the reason that there aren't really any duets between nelly and emile is because mary martin was like self-conscious that she was playing opposite an opera singer and she was like i do not want to singing at the same time (laughs) but it works so well having it be played by someone with such like a beautiful light lyric soprano and it just makes all the songs really sore yeah. And speaking of which, the Emil in this, Paul S- Paul Paulo Shot, I think. Paulo Shot. Paulo Shot. Has the most beautiful voice yeah, ever. Yeah, he's, he's great. And he, uh, they like plucked him out of the opera and he ends up winning Best Actor, which is, I feel like is kind of an upset because it's like, I feel like the stereotype of opera singers is that they don't know how to act. Renee Fleming. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But um, he's very charming. He's got a nice mustache. 
mustache. And I also like during his acceptance speech, because he gets his Tony from Liza Minnelli, and he's like, Liza Minnelli, wow. Um. He's got a cute little accent, and they make a really uh, good couple. Yeah, I think that that is like something too that, you know, I think part of why all these revivals were so successful was because how well that they were cast. Um, And it's just like, it's interesting because it's like, how do you know if two people are going to have chemistry when like with something like this, I feel like there's so much riding on it. It's probably like the hardest thing to do because it's like, you know, you have Bartlett cheer, you have everything, you like can put all of your eggs in the basket. But like if people don't have chemistry, which like is such a abstract thing, like it's not going to work. Yeah, It's not going to work. Another thing that I think, is really well done in this revival. And, like, this show is tricky. And this is something we're going to talk about more when it's time. But, like, this show has, like, so many contradictions where it's, like, one of the most openly liberal anti-racist, like, has a whole song about how, like, being racist is something that you're taught. And then it also has these incredibly racist caricature characters of Bloody Mary and Liat. And I think that this reconception of Bloody Mary as not just, like, this minstrel clown figure and really makes her into this, like, calculating operator where she's like I need to get my daughter out of this situation I need to get this guy here like she knows what she's doing and is really like a sinister figure in a way that I don't think she is in other versions yeah no totally I feel it yeah I feel like that is something that I even remember I the first time I ever saw a production of South Pacific it was at a high school in <laughs> probably 2003 mm. um and I'm like what is going on <laughs> like why is this girl it was obviously a white woman <laughs> a white teenage girl a white teenage girl um in brown face like oh having like a horrible like (laughs) quote asian accent it's like i didn't see this on broadway but i did see it at the kennedy center oh i mean and also like the big um thing that everyone was obsessed with about this was how it opened which was where you have like the opening i'm getting chills just talking about it where you have like the opening of the overture and then the stage opens up and like reveals the orchestra and they're like lifted up which everyone was like wow yeah, no, it's it's actually kind of amazing. There is like a little article about it that we'll post in the show notes. <laughs> One other thing that I read was that some people were like paying 10 times the ticket price. Yeah, it was a it was the hot ticket. That's insane. Something I thought that was very cute was that all of the revivals were introduced by people who were the in, in the original productions, except for this one because everyone involved in it was dead, but they had uh, Harry Connick Jr. who was her ex-co-star in the pajama game. game. So they did, you know, classic medley. Again, you know, it doesn't really read as well as it could, but you got Danny Burstein doing It's Nothing Like a Dame. Oh, also Danny Burstein, incredible casting. Mm -hmm. There's just like this this genre of character that it feels like he was born to play, (laughs) and this is is one of them. We got nothing to put on a clean white suit for. What we need is what there ain't no substitute for. There is nothing like a dame. They do some enchanted evening. Some enchanted evening. You may see a stranger. You may see a stranger. The 
across a crowded room. Ah, uh, you get a little Apollo shot. You know, they just highlight all the... Oh, they highlight all their nominees except Loretta Abelisser, who played Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. I would say Happy Talk is my favorite song from really? South Pacific. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Even it is very catchy. It's very catchy, but it is a little problematic. Oh, yes. <laughs> I th- well, actually, I think uh, Bali High is mine. So, mm-hmm. you know, Bloody Mary, Loki gets Bloody the bang. <laughs> is the girl for us. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love. 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 As we mentioned, all of the acting Tony winners were from revivals. South Pacific got one with Paulo. Let's do Gypsy, where the other three acting winners came from. This production of Gypsy opened March 27th, 2008, and closed January 11th, 2009. After 332 performances, book by Arthur Lawrence, music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and this production was directed by Arthur Lawrence, and it's based on the memoirs of Gypsy Rosalie. And so this was the third production of the show that Arthur Lawrence had directed. He also directed um, the Angela Lansbury version and the Tyne Daly version. And Sam Mendes directed the Bernadette version. Yeah, and apparently (laughs) Arthur Lawrence did not like that production. It is dead to him. It's funny because I have like my two main sources for this besides the New York Times or um, Arthur Lawrence and Patti LuPone's memoirs, both (laughs) of whom are extremely opinionated people. So according to Patti, Arthur had blacklisted her in the early 2000s after she like pulled out of a play that he was, that she was supposed to do a play of his and he like called her up and yelled at her and she was like, after that word on the street was I was blacklisted from ever doing any of Arthur's uh, (laughs) shows. I'm trying to like imagine her as like anybody's in uh, West Side Story. (laughs) So then the loophole ended up being that Lonnie Price wanted to direct her in a production of it at the Ravinia Festival in Chicago, and Arthur Lawrence did not have to approve concert casting. He only approved Broadway casting. Oh. And and if you, as a side note, if you're interested in an extremely detailed, like, play-by-play, song-by-song, beat-by-beat breakdown of... Arthur Lawrence directing this revival, you should get his book, (laughs) mainly on directing. It is very, very thorough. His chapter on it starts, Once upon a time, it was said that a certain playwright swore hell could freeze over before he would allow a certain star to play the legendary leading role in his legendary musical on a New York stage. Then, lo and behold, not only did the star play the role at New York City Center and hell not freeze over, but she was directed by the very same playwright in a production that itself was destined to become legendary. This is called Irony, one of the few certainties of life. And it turns out that Arthur Lawrence's partner, Tom, was dying at the time, and his dying wish was that Arthur direct Patty in a production of Gypsy. Oh my god, that's so beautiful. (laughs) So I think that's part of what... And then he is so salty in this book. It's insane. Like, this is a book written by a 90-year-old with no fucks left to give. And I have (laughs) one more thing. You know, these two, you gotta get it right from the source. The last time I'd spoken with Arthur, it had ended so badly that at first I was afraid to make the call. Having been yelled at like that, I didn't really want to go through it again. On the other hand, I knew what it felt like, so the element of surprise would be eliminated. The last time it had been a shock, but this time I'd be prepared for it, in case it happened again. I was already barred from his work. How much worse could it get? I had nothing to lose, and if I wanted to play Rose, it was a call I would have to make. 
I summoned up all my courage, took a deep breath, and picked up the phone. When Arthur answered, he was gentle and soft-spoken. He complimented my performance as Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. Then he told me he wanted to talk about the future. Patty, I want you to come to New York, and you, are, you and I are going to sit down and have a nice long talk, he said. We're going to do Gypsy. I'm going to direct it myself, and I'm going to cast it with actors. There was no anger, no rancor. Just a loud thump when I fell to my knees in gratitude. Holy shit, I said to myself. <laughs> the phone had felt like it weighed a ton when I started to call him. I aged 25 years just picking it up. Now, with just a few kind words from Arthur, it was a feather, and that dark cloud of banishment that had been following me for several years just evaporated. What a gigantic relief. The phone call that I had dreaded so much turned out to be the beginning of a wonderful new chapter in my career and in my relationship with Arthur Lawrence. Wow. A lot of drama to get get to this point. Yeah, damn. I could never imagine, like, just calling my enemy. <laughs> it's like someone, <laughs> someone who uh, hates me that much. Especially and... Arthur Lawrence, who is not afraid to make an enemy. Like, yeah. he's had falling outs with pretty much everyone he's ever worked with. And, you know, mm. eventually, like... Most of them have been repaired, I think, by the time he died, but yeah. not and, afraid to make an enemy. Yeah, I also think that she makes like a good point that I didn't necessarily realize because I feel like my understanding of Patty stardom came post-2008, but she was kind of like, had like a weird lull, pretty much like between, between Avita and this, like where she had some like minor, like I think Anything Goes was probably like the biggest role that she had yeah. um, in between. She was like in a couple David Mamet plays, which yuck, um, <laughs> but, and then, you know, uh, she did Sweeney Todd, I guess, that was three years before. Yeah, I think that was her big comeback. comeback. Yeah. But yeah, I think that like she's someone who I like assumed had always just been at the level of stardom she was with Avita. But I she think had she, her lows. she had her lows for a while. Yeah. And she, you know, calls out uh, in her speech multiple times that <laughs> she, uh, it was 30 years between her Tony wins. Wow. <laughs> um, this is one of the best speeches, I would say. Oh, yeah. That we've gotten we've gotten to witness on Incredibly this podcast. Incredibly iconic. I might just cut in the whole thing. I, yeah, I think you should. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is a, it's such a wonderful gift to be an actor who makes her living working on the Broadway stage and then every 30 years or so, pick up one of these. <laughs> um, I was afraid to write a speech because I'd written a couple before and they never made it out of my purse. Uh, so I'm gonna use one of the old ones and add a few names. <laughs> I wanna send out first and foremost all of my love to my husband Matt and my son Joshua. I would be dead without both of you. And to our extended family of friends. Um, this won't take long, I promise. <laughs> I want to thank my singing teachers, the one I forgot to mention the last time I stood up here 28 years ago, David Vosberg, Esther Scott, my high school inspiration, and the teacher who taught me how to sing, Joan Later, all of my agents, especially Nevin, Gary, and Philip, Carol Shorenstein Hayes, because I said I would, the acting company, John and Margot, Second Stage Theater, Robin and Carol, City Center, uh, Lincoln Center Theater, Bernie and Andre, City Center Encores, Jack, Michael, Judy, and Arlene, the Ravinia Festival, where my involvement with Gypsy first began, thank you, Wells and Lonnie, and for Gypsy, itself. Thank you, Julie, Steve, my beloved Arthur, who assembled and directed the finest, most dedicated cast of actors I have ever had the privilege of working with, and who is an inspiration to all of us in the theater. Thank you, Bonnie, 
to the designers of Gypsy, the backstage crew, front of house, stage management, ghosts of the St. James Theater, my trusted friend and company manager, Sammy, the dressing room, Angelina, Vanessa, Lyle, and my very own Thelma Ritter, friend and wrangler, Pat, who gives me a shot every single night. I don't know what's in it, but I'm giving the performance of my life. <laughs> my gratitude to my producers, Roger, Roger, Richard, Tom, Jack, Steve, Mark, Ted, Scott, David, shut up, it's been 29 years! <laughs> Who took the risk with me? My acting partner, Sweet Leanne, beautiful Sicilian sister, Laura, and the very wise anchor of our show, my favorite leading man who breaks my heart every night, Boyd, to the real Rose Hoven, who gave all of the women that have ever played this role a part of a lifetime. pivoting from the intensity of that speech. You know, I, I did see her do this production and this was sort of the, I, this was like the first recording of Gypsy that I got into, which I think obviously makes me biased. I don't know if she's necessarily like my favorite performer who's played Rose, but I always come back to her recording because she is the most unhinged. Mm -hmm. And like when I want to listen to Gypsy, I want to listen to a Rose who is just like, she's screaming. She's, uh, you know, she's just going mental. Yeah. Not that it's not like a, you know, well-modulated performance, but she, uh, she does some wild things on that recording. I would say my rankings of Gypsy recordings, Bernadette first, because that was the one, I think it's the one that you grow it, up it with. It really is. It's so hard to <laughs> yeah. overcome the one that like cements the songs into your mind. But yeah, and then I guess Patty next, then Angela. Or no, I would say Bernadette, Angela, Patty, and then I don't care about Tyne Daly or <laughs> Thul Merman. <laughs> I would go um, Patty, Angela, Bernadette. I think uh, Bernadette, I mean, we'll, and we'll talk about that when we talk about it, but yeah. um, it's a much more kind of gentle, yeah, and not, not a steamroller. <laughs> yeah, very sexy. I also, I think it's eventually going to feel like Follies in a little bit where it's like, you know, I think what was so amazing about the original production of Follies was that you actually had people who live this experience playing yeah. these parts. Whereas I even think that people like Patty and Bernadette Peters, like, were still living in like the end of like a vaudeville like that model of showbiz yeah template and it's like i feel like it because it's like they started their careers like yeah both of them played either june or louise like when they were children in productions yeah it, exactly it, it's gonna be interesting 30 years from now when you know gypsy's probably gonna still be performed like what the context is gonna be because even in the recording of the Stanton, it felt like more cartoony than this production did yeah and i think what is strong about this production because they they say that they started, like, he literally brought the rehearsal book from the Tyne Daily production. He was like, well, this is how we're going to do it. And then eventually they were, like, all asking him so many questions that he was like, we're just going to throw it out and start over. And he said that this was the first production of Gypsy where he felt like all of the leading roles had such strong actors, like, not just you know, singers and performers, like they were really digging into the text and the characters in a new way. And I mean, and I think it comes across in all of them winning Tonys, although I think Daniel Breaker was robbed. But just because, yeah. just because the types of roles are really apples and oranges mm -hmm. and he should not have been in that category. And like Boyd Gaines winning for Herbie is really our friend Boyd Gaines again. Yeah. Um, but he, that's a very classic supporting role that he really like brings a real humanity and like three dimensionality to it that is not always there which is what like I understand why they mm -hmm. wanted to reward that yeah and obviously Laura Benanti 
another Star is Born performance. Like, she, and, like, I don't want to pit them against each other, but in both shows that I saw her co-star with Patty, she really ran away with the show both times in Mm. this and in Women on the Verge. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, it's funny because it's, like, it's funny that they kind of did those two shows so close together. (laughs) There's a funny, I heard, like, an interview with her, with Laura, where she talks about how, I think maybe it was when they were doing it at City Center. They were like during rehearsal, she and Patty like went out drinking and they were just like, you know, Patty was like drinking her under the table. They were like doing shots. <laughs> and then the next morning, Laura was like peeling herself out of bed, like more hungover than she's ever been in her life going to rehearsal. And Patty's there just like fresh as a daisy, like nothing <laughs> happened, um, which I think is, uh, is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> but if you want the dressing room scene between the two of them at the end is just like, you know, a scene with no music at all. Just the two of them like going toe to toe as actors. It's just amazing. Also, something that Gypsy and South Pacific have in common, like something we, you know, we've been talking about shows with great opening numbers. Both Gypsy and South Pacific have very, like, underwhelming opening numbers. Sung by by children. children. (laughs) (laughs) And they both have incredible overtures that, like, like when you're listening to it especially, it's like you're all hyped up and then it's like, (laughs) dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So they were, what they were really working on, it was to figure out how to make it an event when it had been revived so many times, including five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at the beginning, it was selling out, it was like a tough ticket to get. And then the financial crisis hit, crisis hit and they had 11 shows closed in January 2009 because things were starting to look bad for everyone. Yeah, no, that article is, you know, there's like a closing notice article of Gypsy, but it's like, and also like every other show. Yeah, and and Patty still had two months left on her contract, but it was just the wrong time. Yeah. So as we mentioned before, Ben Brantley did not like the City Center production and it almost didn't transfer, but he loved the Broadway version. And he said, this production's director also happens to be the man who wrote the original book, the 90-year-old Mr. Lawrence. And though I saw and admired two earlier Broadway revivals by Mr. Lawrence with Angela Lansbury and Tyne Daly, this one has a singular fierceness and clarity of vision. It's not just that Patti Lapone is so commandingly intense in the central role of Mama Rose, the stage mother to end all stage mothers. It's that every character on stage is so obviously driven by an aching hunger to be noticed. That includes Rose's daughters, June, Leanne Larkin, and Louise, Laura Benanti, and her lover, Herbie, Boyd Gaines. And for once, none of them easily yields the stage to Rose. Everyone is fighting for love here, and the genius of this production is how astutely it blends garden variety inter-family struggles for attention into the look-at-me competitiveness of the theater. Of course, these folks sing their thoughts. That's showbiz. And showbiz, in this instance, becomes a magnifying mirror for your basic parent-child relationship. And speaking of, like, you know, we were talking about Douglas Carter being, like, the book writer, being the architect, or, like, the driving force behind it. Like, Arthur Lawrence has really become the driving force behind Gypsy, and I think it's partly because, you know, Julie Stein is no longer with us um, Mm -hmm. and also does not direct. But, like, Sondheim really takes a backseat in all of this. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think, you know, he doesn't really claim ownership of the shows that he was just the lyricist for the way that he does his other shows. But Mm -hmm. I feel like this, more than West Side Story, feels like I can see the Sondheim shine through. Yeah, he's having fun here. So they had, you know, we talked about how they have all the original cast members. They have Jack Klugman who is the original Herbie um, introducing the gypsy performance and his voice is very scary. And I was like, why is he (laughs) like that? And it's because he had throat cancer in the seventies and he had surgery to remove one of his vocal cords, but he still continued to perform for decades after that. That's so insane. (laughs) So good for you, Jack Klugman. You know, in 1960, 
I was honored to be nominated for, my, for a Tony for my performance as Herbie in Gypsy. So for the performance, they obviously do the incredibly iconic Everything's Coming Up Roses. It's the showcase for Patty, but you also have some really nice reacting from Boyd and Laura. Mm-hmm. But I thought it would have been kind of fun. Like, of course, they're going to do this because, you know, they're selling Patty. But I thought it would have been fun if they had done together wherever we go. When I first saw all three of them on stage, I thought that that's where this was going. Right. And then I was like, oh, and then, you know, they do the lead up. I'm her mother and I made her and I can make you now. And I will, my baby. I swear I will. I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to build a whole new act all around you. And it's going to be better than anything we ever did before. Better than anything we even dreamed. Oh, You're right, Herbie. It is for the best. The old act was getting stale and tired. But the new one, look at the new star, Herbie. She's going to be beautiful. She is beautiful. Finished. We're just beginning. And there's no stopping us this time. I had a dream. A dream about you, baby. I think it's good that they did the book lead up. Yeah, yeah. Where I feel like when Bernadette did Rose's turn, it just kind of felt like a little cut out of the show. Yeah, that one is hard to do um, without any lead up. But she, mm-hmm. uh, she, she sold it. Yeah. But Patty, like, just absolutely unhinged. Yes, <laughs> like, I love it. it. Like, I think if you were gonna do like a drag version of Rose, you would use the Patty Lapone recording. Yes, totally. <laughs> it feels so good that like a production like this. Well, I guess a, a production like this and of South Pacific that it's like you don't need a gimmick and you don't need like Hollywood stars. You can just do a show with theatrical performers and like do it right and like not have to, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> despite what Gypsy would tell you, you don't got to get a gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing's gonna stop us. Should we do Greece or should we do Sunday? Let's do Sunday first. Okay. <laughs> Work our way up to Greece. So Sunday in the Park with George was a, I guess it was roundabout because it was at Studio 54. Mm-hmm. It opened February 21st, 2008, closed June 29th, 2008 with 149 performances. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by James Lapine, directed by Sam Bondrock. This was a transfer of a British production. It had, I think the kind of most interesting thing about it is that the way that it depicted George's art and like the paintings it did these like cool kind of combination projection esque mm-hmm. uh you know digital updates I really wanted to see this but I didn't it was a short run I didn't get a chance to mm-hmm. um <laughs> I don't know if there's really too much to say about it yeah I I've listened to the recording before i feel like the definitive is really the bernadette mandy yeah Um, this has like a scaled down orchestra and i think that yeah it is sort of interesting because with gypsy and south pacific we talked about how traditional they went with like their reads on it and i think that like with the exception too of 
maybe the scale down orchestra and the projection design like this too was like a pretty like I think that in the Brantley piece he like is like based on like what we've seen over the few years with like Cabaret and the 94 Carousel and Sweeney Todd in 2005 to like do a revival means you have to like go and find something new and like find a gimmick but I think that the projection design feels a little gimmicky but it also makes a lot of sense yeah no totally and I think like one of the interesting things about it was that in Ben Brantley's review he kind of suggests that Daniel Evans is playing George like he is like on the autism spectrum and like that's why he's only able to connect with people through art like it's not just that he's a dick it's just like that's the way that he like his brain is wired which I think is like a really um an interesting and new interpretation and a valid one and it makes more sense than like being like the follies George and he's like Oh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's like, I think it's easier to um, sympathize with him uh, if you play it that way. And fun fact, when I was looking at the cast list, Santino Fontana was (laughs) one of the soldiers and Alexander Gemignani was the boatman. Cute. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think only the two leads transferred over. Yeah. And Jenna Russell, this was really, you know, it's, I think this might be her only Broadway show that she's ever been on. it come from you then it will be new give us more to see okay so let's get into uh as Barry Bostwick introduces it, a wop bob loop a wop bam grease. <laughs> so now, with a performance from our next nominee for Best Revival of a Musical, please welcome the cast of Wop Bob Loop a Wop Bam Grease. Grease is back, baby. This production opened August 19th, 2007, closed January 4th, 2009. Uh, with 554 performances, which is, you know, a respectable run. It's not like the long run of the uh, the 90s revival, mm-hmm. but it definitely ran. Book Music and Lyrics by Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey, and this one did have the additional songs from the movie. This one, this cast recording has so many songs on it. <laughs> so, you know, this is a really good year for John Farrar, Olivia Newton-John's songwriter, because he has this and Xanadu up in the same season. Yeah. <laughs> just getting those paychecks. And this one was directed and choreographed by... Kathleen Marshall. So the big hook for this revival was that they did a reality show to cast the two leads called Grease, You're the One That I Want. It was based on this format that has been very popular in England, but has not caught on over here where they've cast, they cast The Sound of Music that way. They've cast a bunch of stuff that way over, Mm -hmm. like Andrew Lloyd Webber was the one who started it. And for like, I didn't watch this when it was on, but I for a long time, this was like my white whale of TV because it like there was no way to watch it anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure this is so crazy. And then when I finally was able to watch it, I was like, this is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. It was no Legally Blonde, The Search for the Next Del Woods, yes. let me tell you. <laughs> but the weird thing that I didn't realize is that they had like nicknames for each of the contestants, like for their Flavor personas. Flavor of love. <laughs> <laughs> Not Level. quite like that, but it was like each of the Sandys and each of the Dannys had like different adjectives in front of their names to uh-huh. differentiate them. So you had 
Small Town Sandy, which was Laura Osnes, the winner. Then you had Ballerina Sandy, Baby Sandy, Spiritual Sandy, Serious Sandy, Rock Chick Sandy, and Emotional Sandy. And then the Dannys. Max Crumb was Slacker Danny, who won. And then there was Hot Danny, Wholesome Danny, Ambitious Danny, Bellhop Danny, Boy Band Danny, and Second Chance Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Max Crumb should be Hot Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they all have to be Hot Danny. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't make it on the show. So obviously, you know, Laura Osnes has gone on to uh, fame and I don't know about fortune. She's a, she's a working Broadway actress, multiple time Tony nominee. Uh-huh. That's all you want. Um, and also, I didn't realize Kate Rockwell, who is now in Legally Blonde, was Serious Sandy. Not Legally Blonde, she's now in Mean Girls. Mm -hmm. The thing that I really want to talk about, which I have been waiting my entire life to discuss, is that... So the song they do for the performance is the title song, Grease, which was written for the movie. It was written, like, way after all the other songs. It was written by one of the Bee Gees, performed by Frankie Valli. I think everyone involved in, like, the original production was like, why is this, like, this show's about to be, supposed to be about the 50s. Like, why is this 70s song? In it, but the thing that I've been obsessed with ever since I was a little child watching the movie is that the lyrics to this song are like absolute gibberish. And I kind of want to break it down a little bit because <laughs> I finally have a platform. Because it, And it's also funny to have like all of these musical theater actors trying to act their way through these lyrics that mean <laughs> nothing. I saw my problems and I see the light. We got a loving thing. We got to feed it right. That doesn't mean anything. That's so bizarre. And like, it like it sounds like they wrote it in like five minutes. They're mm. like, okay, it's called Grease. Like, Grease is the word. It's mm. the word that you heard. It's <laughs> got groove. It's got meaning. It's the time. It's the place. It's the motion. It's the way we're feeling. All right, put it, <laughs> lay it down. And then, so you have this like free association word salad. And then they get to the bridge, which is just like two lines where it's like, finally, there's like this weird moment of lucidity. This is a life of And then it's like, it's over. We're out of that moment. (laughs) It just has such a strange arc that I've been trying to parse for like 20 years. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I've been, I've been waiting for this moment. I just remember feeling how horny that cartoon animated (laughs) opening is. The opening is very distracting, but like, especially since the rest of the lyrics in Grease are like very straightforward and like, you know, serve the plot, serve the character. They're not like Sondheim, but they make sense. Yeah. It's like. You know, you're listening to the song for, like, hints about what is about to happen. It's like, I don't know what is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even say anything about Greece. No, <laughs> especially when you're a kid and, like, just the name Greece is kind of confusing. It's like, what could this possibly mean? Like, what does this have to do with these uh, teenagers? Like, not really knowing what a greaser is. Yeah. This song has not helped me at all. Next time that there is a Grease revival, I'm going to write a new opening song. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is like a, you know, it's like there's no song called Grease in it. We got to write a song called Grease. Yeah. But but mm-hmm. I'm sure they were doing it to be like, remember how that last revival didn't have those songs? We got those songs. Yeah. We got it all sorted out. The Rizzo, I couldn't get into. <laughs> you know, Grease, Grease really, uh, it's a, it needs a good Rizzo. It needs a good Rizzo. Um, and speaking of future stars, future Tony winner Lindsay Mendez made her Broadway debut in this production as Jan. It was also funny, like, 
seeing what an impression like the movie has made on our psyches. I was looking at the just the isolated clip of the performance on YouTube and like every single comment was like, why isn't Sandy blonde? Sandy is blonde. <laughs> like, get over it. Oh, the woman who played Rizzo had previously been in the Little Women musical playing Ooh. Meg. Interesting. Yeah. You either die a Meg or you live long enough to become a Rizzo. <laughs> Let's just do kind of a, a speed round of the, um, the the other three original musicals that got, let's see, they got eight nominations between them. We got The Little Mermaid, opened January 10th, 2008, closed August 30th, 2009, 685 performances, nominated for Best Score and Best Lighting. I think the most uh, iconic thing about this is that the I was confused. I thought they were wearing roller skates, but they were uh, wearing Heelys. Yes, and it's people trashed this design concept. I mean, it's it's tough. I think they were trying to do like a Julie Taymor, like we got to figure out how these underwater people are going to move around, but it was just like hideous and bad. I would say that The Little Mermaid is one of my favorite Disney scores. Mine too. It's sad that they botched it so badly and like the casting is very strange like Mm -hmm. it's cast full of excellent people who seem very uh miscast like the worst miscasting is sherry renee scott as ursula yes how dare they she's not even fat no exactly (laughs) like wanting to cast it as a drag queen aside which they should have done an iconic plus size queen yeah played by someone who's like basically you know 10 years off of being a disney princess herself Mm -hmm. and i tried to like find substantiation to this rumor but i remember at the time people saying that mary testa like was in the mix for mm-hmm. it, which would have been way better. Yes. <laughs> but um, what a weird misfire. Like, I feel like they were trying to play it so safe, I guess. They didn't want they didn't want Ursula to steal the show from Ariel. Yeah. It, like, yeah, it just feels so... If you're going to fuck anything up, like, how would you fuck that up? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that if this show was happening now, things... Make Titus Ursula, you oh, know what I yeah. mean? Like, that's... Uh... <laughs> and make Sherry Sebastian. It's perfect. <laughs> I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know something's starting right now. Watch and you'll see. Someday I'll be part of Then Young Frankenstein opened uh, November 8th, 2007 and closed January 4th, 2009 to 485 performances. Um, They had three nominations, Featured Actor, Featured Actress, and Scenic Design. This also had an extremely stacked cast. You got Sutton Foster, Andrea Martin, Martin. Megan Mullally, Shuler Hensley playing Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. which, fun little trivia fact, this is not his first time playing Frankenstein. He also played... Or playing Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> he played it in Van Helsing opposite his Oklahoma co-star Hugh Jackman. Oh! So if you want to see a fun little Oklahoma reunion <laughs> um, and a lot of other really weird stuff, you should watch Van Helsing. Yeah. And this performance is like the definition of like a one-joke song. Like if this is the best that they had to offer, yeah. like Megan Mullally, it's not even a one. It's not even really a joke. It's like a one euphemism song. Deep love. At last, I found deep love. Been searching for deeper love for 
And I think that the fact that this did so badly makes me think that the producers is not going to have, like, a future. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's something that I uh, am interested in investigating. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking, like, and maybe I made this up also, but I remember, like, in sort of the mid-2000s, there was this story floating around that Sutton Foster was like, I'm only going to do roles in original musicals. But then after the one-two punch of Young Frankenstein and Shrek, she was like... Catch me and anything goes. <laughs> deep love, at last I found deep love. Now I will keep love. Deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, forever in a Okay, and then we have uh, the Catered Affair, opened April 17th, 2008, closed July 27th, 2008, with 116 performances. They had three nominations for Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Orchestrations. So it's kind of sweet that they paid for a performance, even though like the writing was really on the wall, and they like closed almost immediately after. They, they ran another month after the Tonys. So. Yeah, and the show, I listened to the recording, and it's not bad. It's just like... It feels way too small. I think it just got lost in this season. It's really tender yeah. and the score's not bad. And you have Faith Prince who sings magnificently on the recording. You could tell from the performance that it's like, this seems like a sweet and like subtle show, mm -hmm. but it doesn't come across well in that performance. And I think maybe it would have done better off Broadway. Yeah. It's just like so hard too. Cause I think that like off Broadway gets this rep reputation of like, that's where all the weird shows belong, but it's like also like something like this does too. Yeah. I think that maybe people would question spending <laughs> over a hundred dollars on a ticket to this just because it I think that spectacle is really missing from this. Yeah. Especially when there are so many other like much more exciting musicals competing mm -hmm. for people's attention this season. Gliding across the floor. In the arms of the man who adores her, the man she'll adore for the rest of her life. Speaking of Kristen Chenoweth, I liked when she like was not having the copy that they were having her read. Accepting the Tony for best performance by a featured actress in a musical is a thrill that defies gravity. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> I guess we should probably talk about the plays because mm -hmm. um, August Osage County is um, the big winner. But I actually thought they did a really good job with how they presented the plays because they had both you know, Whoopi doing like the the intro in front mm -hmm. of the sets and they showed a little clip. Picture a house, three story wood frame house, a big house you'd find out in Oklahoma somewhere. White people live in it. Meet our first nominee for best play, August Osage County by Tracy Letts. 
and then they also had the year in plays montage but I thought they did it in a good way where it like because they sort of play around with how they do it they were very clear like they had the poster on one side and then they had the scenes from the other and then it had it subtitled with who was in it which is sometimes hard to see in these like YouTube like compressed broadcasts yeah no totally I think that yeah they that totally read that worked for me Mm mm-hmm August Osage County um, opened December 4th, 2007 and closed June 28th, 2009 after 648 performances. It's written by Tracy Letts um, and was directed by Anna Shapiro. Um, And it was commissioned by and the world premiere was presented at the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, which is actually an important thing to note because Steppenwolf is this kind of like little scrappy Chicago theater company that's like incredibly ensemble driven and I think that like the spirit of the company speaks to this production. The writer slash actor Tracy Letts who wrote this and has starred in countless other plays. I think he's currently on, in All My Sons with Annette Benning right now. And uh, Lady Bird's dad and Lady Bird. Oh and Lady Bird's dad and Lady Bird. <laughs> we th- can thank Steppenwolf for launching Laurie Metcalf's career. We can also thank uh, for SpongeBob the musical. Oh yeah, Tina Landau. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're great. And it's cool to see the little theater company that could represent <laughs> yeah. it on Broadway. So the synopsis of the show, the death and funeral of their father brings three sisters to the home of their mother, Violet, an acid tongue pill-popping cancer patient. Daughters Barbara, Karen, and Ivy, along with their significant others and various other kin, take the full brunt of their dysfunctional matriarch's venom. So my, like, superficial reading of this, I'm like, oh, this, like, stinks so bad of, like, every other American play ever. You know, the play starts, it's hot, everyone's an alcoholic, the mom's addicted to pills, like, everyone's, like, pissed off at each other. But after, like, giving it a chance, though, I really got into it, and I think that it doesn't shy away from the comparisons to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or A Long Day's Journey into Night. But I think that the fact that this has become like so emblematic of like what American theater is about, you know, raises a question or two. Like, like why is everyone so comfortable with like seeing a dysfunctional family? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think this really surprised everyone by becoming like such an event in such a crowded season where, you know, it's really hard for plays to stand out, especially if they don't have a star. And it's like, here's this cast of total unknowns in this like three and a half hour play. And they took home a bunch of Tonys. They won two, they won two acting ones. I think that they won two acting. I think Deanna... Deanna Dunnigan. And yeah. it was her. It was a lot of their Broadway debuts. It was her Broadway debut. When we started rehearsals in Chicago a year ago on August Osage County, none of us dreamed we would be here. I certainly didn't. After 34 years in regional theater, I, I never even thought about it. I watched on TV like everybody else. Like, I love when they, you know, reward people who have really been, like, pulling it out in the trenches for years and then they finally make it to the big time yeah and it's like i say that steppenwolf's like a chicago theater company but like for a lot of the time they were like we were actually like 30 minutes outside of chicago <laughs> like in basements and it was adapted into uh, a movie with um a very star-studded cast that was not as well received. I think probably part of the magic, it's like one of those things where it's like on paper, it's not that special. And then part of the magic is just, you know, being in the space with them and it's hot and it's like uncomfortable and you're kind of just like on this journey with them. Mm-hmm. The magic of theater. Yeah, it won five Tonys and was nominated for seven and won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Yeah, and you know, between August Osage County and 
Oklahoma. The state of Oklahoma really has some strong um, representation in the Broadway sphere. Yeah. It would be funny to like break down kind of state by state where like all of these famous like musicals happen because I feel like a lot of them are in New York. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of them are in Europe. There aren't that many in Los Angeles. Is there a map? I bet that's something that someone has done has done like a a Broadway map. Of of, like where all the probably like iconic yeah iconic musicals where does cats take place in london (laughs) cats takes place in our collective nightmares um i I think it probably does take place in london so i think that's it right okay so (sighs) i forgot how to wrap up all right so you can there are lots of different ways you can contact us and we love hearing from you um as long as you're saying supportive things (laughs) you can email us at my little tony's podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram. That's it. You can subscribe on iTunes, rate and review. And next time we will be doing 1980, our first dip into the Andrew Lloyd Webber pond. Yes. With Evita. And also, if you're curious about anything that we referenced on the show, we have detailed show notes on our website. Oh, yes. Which is mylittletoniespodcast.com. I feel like maybe we should mention the show notes at the beginning of an episode because yeah. maybe people don't listen this far. Yeah. Um, you're missing all the important information. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Come to New York and see a Broadway show. Come see any of the shows that you saw and love the theater. We'll see you next year. Good night.